welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those of us who worship them, all set against the heartwarming and uplifting backdrop of the end of the world. This week, my special guest is Ariane Dvarshaus, a professional bird guide, writer and motivational speaker, and current holder of the Guinness Book of World Records for observing the largest number of bird species in a single year. In 2016, he launched his global big year and ultimately saw 6,852 of the world's roughly 10,800 or so bird species, setting a record that stands to this day. His year-long adventure raised nearly 50,000 euros for the BirdLife Preventing Extinctions programme. Ariane also starred in the award-winning documentary Ariane's Big Year and appears regularly on radio, television and podcast programmes in the Netherlands and beyond. On the 4th of May this year, a book about his adventure will be published in English by Chelsea Green Publishing under the title The Big Year That Flew By. Ariane, welcome to Golden Grenades. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for, for having me. Really excited. Before we get into your the five bird species that you've chosen to talk about today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your background and how you developed an interest in birding. Obviously, in, in the book, which I'm holding here. Ah, you have it. I have no copy yet myself, so you're you're you have it before me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a it's a great read. I love I, I love any stories about you know people doing big years. You know, Kingbird Highway, all these kind of books of things I'll probably never do myself. But before we get into the into your big year, tell me about your background and when your love of birds started. No. It started uh, from the get-go. So my oldest memories all revolve around birds and nature. So I grew up in uh, Scheveningen, another very horrible name to pronounce, <laughs> which is uh, 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 basically the uh, Hague by the coast in uh, in the Netherlands. And um, uh, yeah, I immediately grew grew fond of the, the beach and the dunes and and um, collecting shells and stuff like that as a little kid. And of course, um, birds. And um, well, I can vividly remember like those, like those spark birds that that like drew me deeper into my passion for birding. Like um, when I was maybe seven or eight years old, uh, I saw my first bullfinch. And I thought that's that's just a terrific, amazing bird to see. Or my first kingfisher, uh, uh, my, and of course, my first. Uh, um, great bitter, and we'll come back later uh, to that. But my life changed uh, completely when I was twelve. So already I was like more and more became more and more fanatic in uh, with birding, and uh, but I didn't know there was something like a uh, like a birder, like a true bird watcher, and and somebody would would count migratory birds and ring birds and do stuff like that. But then I was uh, 12 and I read in a magazine of uh, the VBN, um, uh, the Dutch Bird Life Partner, um, that uh, with northwesterly storms in, November, in uh, September, you can see seabirds along the Dutch coast. So uh, I looked uh, through the window and I saw it was a northwester, like northwesterly uh, gale force wind. So I, I asked my mom to go to the harbor of Scheveningen. She first thought I was a like I grow mad, <laughs> but then we, we we went over there and and we we walked uh, all the way to the far end of the pier and there was this obscure man in a green raincoat hunched over a telescope <laughs> and I asked like are you a bird watcher and like he was a proper bird watcher 
And uh, that day, I like he, he let me have a look through his telescope, and I saw, saw my first uh, Arctic Jaeger and my first uh, um, Gannets, and like like uh, the whole world opened up for me. And from that point on, I would be like bird watching every day, before school, after school, and all quite often during school. <laughs> And that is basically how I grew, became more and more fanatic. When I was 15, I traveled with a friend, like imagine that, I traveled to Turkey and I hitchhiked across the border with Iraq and Iran and Georgia for two weeks. My mom uh, thought I was uh, like in an all-inclusive resort in Alanya, but I was actually looking for uh, Caspian snowcocks and Caucasian grouse and stuff like that And uh, when I was 15. <laughs> so yeah i was gonna say you must have very understanding parents but you actually i do yeah lied at that point but yeah in the book it does come across that your parents have been particularly encouraging to you um and you know there was i i wonder you you mentioned that you had a soft toy as a child that was black and white soft toy called pika pika now you didn't name that so somebody must have no 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 i named it that's the crazy thing oh really so my mom wrote in my children's book, like my photo album, because I, that's one of my first words. I mumbled like Pika Pika, something like that, or like mom, uh, dad, and Pika Pika. And she wrote that down as P-I-C-A and then P-I-C-A, which is uh, literally the Latin name for, for magpie. That's, so, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, that's just dumb dumb luck but <laughs> or, or coincidence, but it's funny, yes. But your grandmother gave you a book on your seventh birthday. I think you mentioned the book, a, a bird book. Yeah, yeah. already got some of my, my grandparents uh, and, and and my, my parents, of course, they, they recognized that I was not just interested, a little bit interested in nature. As I think every every kid is a naturalist uh, in the beginning. And then some kids become more and more fanatic, like, and, and others like lose interest at some point. But I uh, I was uh, the former type, so I I like they they recognized that I was just completely obsessed by by nature and especially birds and and they like would support me so um, like literally uh, um, all my presents at birthdays or at Christmas it were all bird related always everything was bird related yeah I guess it's like another kid who's interested in football and they get. Football-related presents all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But little did your grandmother know that twenty years or so after giving you that book, you'd mm-hmm. break the world record for seeing <laughs> the greatest number of birds in a year yeah. and beating poor Noah Stryker's record, which stood for three hundred and sixty-five days. Bless him. Yeah. Um, eight months, actually. <laughs> oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, eight months. And I <laughs> broke his record on the, in uh, so I think in November. 11th or something so uh, oh no no um yeah like w- almost two months before the end of my big year yeah yeah amazing P- poor noah but you you had an extra day though didn't you you did it on a leap year did that that yeah. day didn't make much difference though I'm, I'm guessing no 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 so if you i averaged about like 19 different species per day new species every day and like so that one extra day i won't mind and also, I used a uh, different taxonomy. So I used the more, more progressive IOC taxonomy, which is a bit technical. So um, I had uh, ended up with a little bit more species, but it's also that it's just maybe like a 140 species difference with the Clements list that uh, Noah used. So yeah, still quite a bit more. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so your your total was six thousand eight hundred and fifty-two, yeah. which you know it, it's unlike. Well, do you think that'll ever get beaten? Well, maybe there's a like an ambitious kid listening to this podcast and and thinking, well, that's quite an adventure. I want to do uh, something like that in in the future. But to be honest, I, I think it will be difficult. Um, not to be arrogant, but like the total is is quite quite high at the moment. And I was very lucky. I I made few errors and didn't get sick for a single day. And also with uh, no problems, big problems with flights. I didn't I had no big problems with the weather. So that was one thing. And also like the pressure on uh, flying uh, change. You know, carbon footprint. Like to be honest, I wouldn't do trip like this again. You know, I, I offset it, all the uh, my carbon footprint from my, my big year and, and also from all my um, travel since. And I did a big fundraiser for BirdLife International. So that helped. But still, you know, I, I traveled for a year to 40 different countries. And uh, like the public opinion about traveling for, for so intensely for a year changed a bit. So or a lot so i think that that also uh makes it more difficult and also the world is changing you know uh we had a big pandemic we'll probably get another pandemic in the near future there's more war more birds are becoming endangered and getting extinct so that that's of course the biggest uh, issue is that uh ecosystems are reaching their critical point and um yeah it's a, it's a bit sad but uh, that's the reality yeah yeah, absolutely. So many species are on the brink now and yeah. due to habitat loss and changes in the oceans and, you know, so many different different things. But I, I think there is a move to, you know, amongst a lot of birders not to twitch, not to travel so much, if yeah. at all, you know, zero carbon birding. But you did talk about just one story in the book, which was in India, where yeah. you had a friend, Peter, who took you to a community in India, yeah. a, a small, a small village. Tell me about Nagaland. that. One. Yeah, in Nagaland. Yeah. So that's with, uh, with Peter Lobo, um, uh, a bird guide, but also like a conservationist in uh, operating in, uh, in India. And um, he's especially operating in the Northeast. I traveled with him and uh, with uh, Rofiku Islam, uh, another bird guide and a couple of friends of mine. Uh, yeah. They took us to this like tiny village in the middle of nowhere. 10 years ago, it was like a, a hunting village. Like uh, there was a big tradition of, of hunting birds there, not just for food, but also for their feathers. So they hunted everything from uh, tragopans to monals and um, all these really awesome birds that we want to see. But then uh, Peter like developed a, a form of ecotourism there where birders come to stay in that village. The women in the village prepare the food. You stay at a... At a, at a at their home young boys and girls from the village are trained as bird guides and they take you out to see uh, all these special birds that occur in the area and now that whole area became like uh, advocates for conservation that village and other villages around in the surrounding area also started develop more of a conservation mindset and and hunting became more or less abandoned in uh, in, in just the course of a couple of years so what i do think is that it is also needed for people to travel to these areas because ecotourism is so important. Um, if there was no ecotourism on Madagascar or the Philippines or uh, the Atlantic rainforest of Brazil, 
all of that forest and all the, those uh, wonderful birds and other amazing animals that occur there would have gone extinct already. So yes, it is not great to fly, but also it is vital that people keep on visiting this area. So it's a bit of a, a diabolic dilemma. So if, if anybody listening here and, and like thinking, well, I really want to go to one time to maybe Peru and see all those amazing birds, but I'm, I'm hesitant to do it because of my footprint. I would say go and then travel responsibly and, and visit eco-lodges that really focus on conservation, uh, travel with a local bird guide, eat at a local restaurant, and then really invest in that local sustainable uh, economy. Yeah. It's a hugely complex issue and it's obviously different for different people, but I think it, you know, it's not just simply a case of don't fly, which it no. might be for some people. And, and that you would lose more nature than you would save ultimately, I think, especially in the short run. Sure. There's an interesting thing over here in the UK at the moment about uh, the RSPB have put a call out to birders not to go and visit Capacaley this year <laughs> up in Scotland in the Cairngorms because okay. their, their numbers are just decreasing decreasing every year and oh. that it's critical now you know so one of the main disturbances is birders going to see them so they're yeah. trying to say just just leave them for a while <laughs> you know yeah. you don't you don't need to get them on your year list every year just just let them be i agree totally like here in the netherlands i don't i for a long time already i don't i for exactly that reason i don't twitch anymore even if it's like a real like a crazy lifer from Siberia turns up. I, I, and uh, even if it's uh, just an hour away, I won't go. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I'm, I'm very similar. I, I tend not to, to go very far afield these days. Yeah. Um, before we go on, I just wanted to tell you, I'm a record breaker as well. You I'm, are? Yeah, yeah. I was in the Guinness Book, Book of Records. No. I, think, I think my record may have been broken. And when I say my, I, I was one of lots of people. Um, I, I took part at a music festival a few years ago in the UK in the largest, the world's largest collection of people dressed as Superman. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm not, it's impossible to shake hands through my laptop, but um, <laughs> from one record holder to another, congratulations and welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I suspect it's been be beaten since and it was a bit of fun. It was it was a hell of a lot easier than your achievement as well, I think. Well, I, it depends how tight the costume was. <laughs> I, I would say it was a little bit too tight and the photos aren't okay, exactly then it's flattering. A big achievement. <laughs> <laughs> right then, Orion. Uh, we could we could talk all day about about other things, but we need to get down to the nitty gritty. Yes. The concept of this podcast is that there is, or there has been, an environmental Armageddon. You know, it's becoming increasingly likely that we're going to see a mass extinction uh, event at some point in the not too distant future. And the concept of this podcast is that you have the unenviable task of choosing five bird species, your favorites, five bird species that you can save and bundle into your backpack or onto the, the ark that you've created to um, survive in the desolate post-apocalyptic landscape after this massive event. Then, then I should choose a couple of generalists that could actually survive. <laughs> so I would choose feral pigeon, uh, jack doll, um, house sparrow. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 I won't. Goldfinch seem to be doing all right as well. I'll take this very literally. <laughs> so, but I think we've got a little twist on this. You're, you've, you've chosen five birds, which, you know, 
became big characters for you during your big year. Yeah. So let's talk about bird number one. one. Well, let's start off with the biggest, like uh, my my most favorite uh, bird of the entire year, um, which was the the horned guan, and it's a uh, it's this like mythical beast, a bit similar to a turkey, um, and live, lives in the cloud forest, remote cloud forest of uh, uh, northwestern Guatemala and southwestern uh, uh, Brazil or uh, Mexico and Chiapas. It scores on all all fronts, so it's bizarre looking. It has this like crazy red horn, like unicorn like horn on its on its forehead. It's hard to find. You have to uh, uh, really work for that bird. Yeah, it is a unique genus. It is like a, it's a very limited uh, distribution. It's endangered. So yeah, and it was a bird that has been on my wish list for a long, long time. Ever since I saw it in a, like a photo album uh, as a little kid, and uh, like other pe- uh, kids wanted to see a want to see a tiger or a blue whale or an orca or a polar bear for when they are older. And like for me, it was uh, things like uh, the horned guan or the strange tailed tyrant <laughs> stuff that is a bit more niche, but. Uh... <laughs> But yeah yeah but you fulfilled that dream you 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 I did. picked these niche species and you know that the horn guan is a is a funny comical looking bird like you say yeah. the the plumage of this bird is it's got like this stunning sort of petrol black yeah. back doesn't it and then the the white belly and the broad tail with the white stripe and so yeah. this tiny tiny little yellow tiny bill it's like fruity forest so it, it likes eat this tiny avocado fruits and, and figs and then it's got this daft sort of pencil topper, red. Yeah, it's more like a signal function uh, to other horn guans, something like that. People don't know exactly where that uh, red horn, uh, the horn is actually for. So that's also, it's also cryptic and not a lot is known about this bird. And I had to wor- work bloody hard to see it, like really, really hard. So I had to walk up uh, the slopes of uh, the Atitlan volcano in Guatemala. And normally it's like a two-day trek and you camp up there. But I did it in uh, in one morning. I had to be back at uh, at noon at the lodge. So I started hiking uh, something like 2.30 in the morning with a local guide, headlight on. And uh, we hiked up so more than a kilometer, almost straight up in uh, just a couple of hours. So um, I was soaking wet with uh, sweat when we arrived and it was still dark. And at two and a half thousand meters, it's bloody cold. And then you need to see it at first light, but we didn't. And eventually, like, became 8 o'clock, 9 a.m., 10 a.m. And eventually at 11 a.m., the guide said, you know, we really need to go. This is our last chance. So we split up. I went downhill. He went uphill. And then finally I heard, like, a whisper, like, or um, him whistling from higher up the slope. So I ran back up, like, coughing my lungs out. And then I thought, where's the bird? And he pointed down, like, in this ravine. So I... I like literally charged down the ravine like a like a headless chicken, and then finally I, the, this bird was there on the mossy branch in the in the canopy, and uh, like it just sat there, and I was like almost breathless from the effort, and like like I was completely in awe of this amazing bird, and uh, yeah, so like also the experience was just monumental. If I had seen it at first light, it maybe it, it was not as epic as it, as it as it, when you see it in the dying dying. I think it's everybody's dream, isn't it? You don't want to just see something dead easily, you know. You you, you want yeah. to put a little bit of effort in. And that's funny. So uh, I a lot of times 
people ask me, well, uh, in your book, you uh, very uh, like almost with every bird, you see it in the dying seconds. But it is because I like I tried and tried and like we stayed until the very last moment and then a little bit longer. And then when we finally saw the bird, we left. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. It, uh, it's the natural order of things when doing a big year. You will see a lot of things in the dying seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit more, it makes it a bit more interesting, isn't it? Then we rocked up, we saw it, we left. Sometimes that happened as well. Sometimes it went ridiculously easy. Yeah. Like, and that also, uh, like that corn break where we'll chat about later, that became ridiculously easy. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're massively endangered, aren't they? There's, there's a few hundred left, maybe. I think I, think I saw a figure 600 to no. maybe 1700 there's you know the numbers vary but a lot of habitat loss is leading to that yeah so let's move on and so in the background us... my daughter is making some weird noises while she's asleep so in, if you hear like <laughs> that's my my month-year-old daughter sleep trying to sleep so <laughs> Fingers crossed you'll pull through this entire interview. <laughs> I'll keep my voice down just in case. Yeah, so a, a few less birding trips on the horizon, I'd imagine. Yeah, but um, it's all good. You know, I've had my fair share of birding. I've seen the world. I've seen a lot of birds. Like, it's crazy. You know, I, I, I visited all these crazy ecosystems from Papua New Guinea to almost every country in South America, Africa, Southeast Asia. But, you know, one of the, my favorite places to go birding is right here in the Netherlands. Because I, like, I'm really focused on, uh, like, recording sounds and, like, trying to find my own rarities. And I spend, like, almost every spare moment in the field, like, birding. And here I know every call. I know exactly when to find which birds. And uh, so I, I really enjoy birding here. I think uh, it's only a matter of time before you've got a got your daughter in a backpack. I'm already, uh... already doing it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. She, she has already like a blue throat on her life list and uh, a goshawk and uh, yeah. That's a pretty good life list for a, for a month old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right then, tell us about the second bird you've chosen today. Bird number two. two, two, two. Yeah, the, the white-necked uh, picatartis, or the white-necked rockfowl, that was really special for multiple reasons. Again, it scores on all, all fronts, like it's bizarre looking, crazy beautiful. It is has a limited distribution in Western Africa. It is endangered. Um, it's been lost for quite some time and refound. And it is um, a bird that is really important from a conservation uh, perspective. Uh, it launched the career of one of my biggest heroes, uh, Dave Edinburgh, into the limelight. So he used to work for a television show called ZooQuest back in the, in the 60s, I think. And he was uh, following Jack Lester of the British uh, Museum of Natural History on his quest to find these bizarre uh, creatures all around the world. Uh, so they went to Sierra Leone um, to look for the Picatartis. But on a previous visit to West Africa, Jack Lester, uh, the curator of the museum um, and the host of the show, he became sick uh, from some kind of parasite or virus that he picked up in West Africa, actually. And he, in the end, died from that uh, in infection. And then everything was already set up for, for filming. So Edinburgh was um, uh, then... Uh, put in front of the camera to actually host uh, the series. 
And there he was in the, I think, the early 60s um, at the nesting site of a Picatartis in uh, Sierra Leone, like black and white images. And, and he talking about this beautiful bird nesting on the on the cliff face in this uh, house swallow, house martin, like a cup-shaped mud nest. like. <laughs> and then those images that uh, went all around the world and launched his career. And now I was there 65 years uh, later, uh, also with a camera crew. So there was a documentary film shot about my uh, big year called Arnold's Big Year by a friend of mine who's also uh, like a fanatic birder. Like we were at the tiny village of Bonkro in uh, in Ghana and we went to see this bird and he was already there filming. It was a whole spectacle. So the whole village uh, came out to see us and greet us, went out again with uh, kids that were trained in the village as a bird guide, went with them and the film crew to this uh, nesting site. And then we had just the most crazy sighting of this Picatartis because they can be skittish, but we had hour long views in the sunshine, pristine conditions. And like literally I in the documentary, you can see me impersonating, of course, a little bit ironic, uh, Dave Edinburgh. So I'm I'm there sitting there and I say, uh, so we are here at the nesting side of the Picatartis. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then uh, oh, yeah, I was I was following in my hero's footsteps and then seeing this crazy beautiful bird. Yeah. Oh that's that's incredible. That's everything, yeah. They're, they are crazy birds. They almost don't look like birds. They, they, their plumage is so... Immaculate. Un, unfeathery. They're, they're like plastic, and it looks like they're wearing noise-canceling headphones. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you've no idea what one of these... If you're listening to this and you don't know what a white-necked Picathartes looks like, go and look it up, because they're, they're just crazy-looking, amazing birds. And, and a good f- word for Scrabble, Picathartes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And they've got a bit of uh, interesting mythology as well, haven't they? The various tribes and rural communities had their own names for this bird and traditional beliefs around the bird. Um, Nest sites were often seen as sacred Mm -hmm. um, and that you could only find the nest sites if you had special powers. Um, Well, you sort of need special powers (laughs) to find the the nesting site because it is very specific. eh? It needs... Um, um, overhanging cliff face uh, surrounded by rainforest near a stream uh, it's very very picky so indeed you need sort of special powers to find it or a <laughs> local guide yeah and, and i think i read somewhere as well that their, their nest sites and the birds became sort of symbol for infertile women from these communities you know they would sometimes go and have rituals there to, to try and communicate with some fertility gods or whatever through yeah. through the bird and their caves and what is uh there's also another picatartes uh, the gray-necked picatartes in uh, cameroon and and that is funny because that is a bird noah did see and i didn't so ah. noah went to cameroon and he saw both picatartes so he saw the the white-necked in ghana and the gray-necked in uh, cameroon so i envy him a bit there <laughs> oh you can let him have that one though can't you yeah yeah I'll have <laughs> right Tell us about your third choice, bird number three. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a weird one. I mentioned him briefly already, but uh, it's the corn crake. And it's it's also to sort of explain a bit of like how a big year works. Sometimes you see these crazy birds in these very remote places like the Picatartis or the 
uh, horned guan. And sometimes you see these crazy, beautiful, rare birds just at the um, at the very stupid location. In this case, I I'd only heard corn quake before. I'd never seen it, and I'd only. Uh, just a couple of days in the Netherlands um, in between like layovers uh, during my big year. And those layovers were not there for me to to chill and uh, with my family and uh, and sleep over. And, and no, uh, it was like focus on finding a couple of target birds that were still missing on the list. One of them was Corn Craig. And uh, a guy contacted me uh, a couple of days before I before my layover that he has a had a site for Corn Craig opposite a McDonald's in uh, in Utrecht city and just a tiny field there and well we went there uh, at dusk and crazy enough that bird was was like like clockwork calling opposite the McDonald's so you had all this hang youth <laughs> eating um, french fries and and smoking outside of McDonald's and we were standing there with our binoculars and you hear like <laughs> the, uh, the corn crack and it actually because it was such a tiny area i actually really like for the first time in my life had crazy good views of a corn crack i saw it really well yeah it was just a bizarre setting and a very special bird because it's decreasing rapidly throughout europe again it is a unique genus it's um, a, a relic like a it's a it's a rail and a very beautiful one it makes a crazy sound and it also scores on on many fronts you know i always rank my birds not just in uh, beauty or rarity but like on there are multiple pillars that the bird can score yeah i've never seen a corn cracker they're notoriously hard to see and i always imagine that you know you're going to have to really get lucky in the wilds of scotland or the hebrides or western ireland or something where there are these tiny little few clinging on there well you yeah you, that's a good sight actually there you can see it on uh, walking on the low stone walls don't, don't they uh, well, I no, always never. imagine they're just hidden in a field and that you'll hear yeah. it all night long, but never actually see it. I, I sometimes see these crazy pictures from the, I think the Outer Hebrides, yeah, where they uh, where they walk on stone walls, but maybe that's just pure luck. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But yeah, they've got this crazy weird song, you know, that's just often relentless, isn't it, in little bursts all through the night. They've got yeah, a long... It's a Latin onomatopoeia, yeah. yeah. Next Grex, that's the Latin name, yeah. Absolutely. And they've got a long tradition in poetry and folklore because of this this crazy song and people trying to understand what they mean. But yeah, like you say, they're, they're declining rapidly and it's one of those species that particularly in, the, in British Isles could very soon be a, a, a non-breeder unless yeah. unless we're very careful. And it's, yeah, it's uh, like the main reason, of course, is like we changed our agricultural tradition completely to intensive uh, agriculture, but also this bird, and I have to like a shout, do a shout out to like the people from bird life, like protecting these, these birds on, in Cyprus and Malta. And, uh, but these birds also still uh, like uh, vividly hunted in uh, also in the Middle East, just for pure tradition and pleasure, which is just an um, really, really sad. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's it's one of those, you know, I think that's it, isn't it? Birds on migration that, yeah. that are shot for sport yeah, as they like go the over. like the turtle dove and the oriole. Yeah, it's the same uh, stupid tradition. Yeah. 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 People and tradition are just, like, tradition can be nice, but when it comes to, to nature, it's usually terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very true. Very true. Um, on a lighter note, let's move <laughs> yeah. on and we'll talk about your fourth choice, which is a belter. Tell us about bird number four. Bird number four. 
Yeah, well, lighter note. <laughs> this is one. It's a trauma. <laughs> the <best> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a traumatic experience. Yeah. <laughs> now that was in the, the highlands of New Guinea. I was um, looking for the the largest and most well, probably arguably one of the most spectacular uh, birds in the world, the largest bird of paradise, the black sicklebill. And so this bird lives on only a couple of isolated. Uh, uh, cloud forest covered ridges uh, in the highlands of New Guinea. And uh, to see it again, I had to walk up a hillside in the very early morning as when it was still dark. So I was with two friends. We started hiking at uh, 3.30 in the morning. During the hike, we heard another very spectacular bird, which we also didn't see, the feline owl at night jar. Only heard it. But then, uh, so we arrived at... Uh, like the crack of dawn at this pristine cloud forest with folk and and orchids and uh, old beard man's lynching hanging from every branch. So it was this amazing setting. And then as it slowly got light, there were a king of Saxony, bird of paradises, and uh, Princess Stephanie's Astrapias displaying around us. And you know the king of Saxony, bird of paradise? Yeah. With those uh, like crazy ornaments dangling from its like the side of its head, yeah. It's... I only know them from David Attenborough, but yeah, stunning birds. Fantastic! And then uh, as as it got lighter and lighter, we had all these crazy other uh, birds uh, that popped up, and then the the black sicklebill started calling, and it sounds like somebody is shooting with a um, shooting a machine gun, and like goosebumps everywhere. But of course, it was a bit foggy in the in the rainforest, a bit misty. Uh, we could hear it echoing through the cloud forest, but I couldn't see the bird because, like, the closed canopy and also the the fog and the mist in the rainforest. And um, so we could slowly hear the like the sound travel downhill. And like, so I decided, like, I have one chance to see this bird. So again, like with. It's also almost uh, like that horn guan. I like a headless chicken. I started to chase it down the mountain. So off trail I went downhill, and those other two birders and the guide they were still back at the ridge, and they like tried to stop me, but I was already off. And in the end, you know, I was literally below this the same tree, and I but the the canopy was just covered in fog, so I could. I, I could see some dark shadows moving in the in the canopy. I could not see the bird, and then of course I was lost, you know, because I <laughs> ran for at least 500 meters downhill, and it took me another half an hour before finally I, I refound the trail. And so I almost got lost in the New Guinea rainforest trying to see that uh, black sicklebill. But you know, in uh, here in the Netherlands we say "horen is score." To hear a bird is to actually sort of pick or see a, a bird, and with this bird, it's such a special sound and so recognizable, you know. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm comfortable count, counting that bird, but still, I, I would love to see it. And I did see, luckily, the brown sicklebill, which is actually quite similar, but not as spectacular, but still very spectacular. Yeah. I, I think for anybody listening, the black sicklebill is the one that you might have you might you might remember from David Attenborough's shows. It's the one that sort of brings its wings up around its head like a big crazy disc and then extends its tail and then almost like levitates up and down a branch like it's a yeah. a big horizontal spatula that just stupid birds crazy i mean the birds of paradise 
you yeah. know, they're, they're, they're dream birds for, for the vast majority of us who are bird lovers. So the fact that you've seen any of them, you know, I'm, I'm supremely envious of. Yeah. Um, at this point in the podcast, I'm going to introduce my zero punches pulled question. Zero punches pulled. Which is where I try to think of a question that you have not been asked before. And you're a man who's obviously a very, very famous birder and you've done a lot of interviews. So <laughs> trying to think of a question that you hadn't been asked before was quite tricky. But I've come up with two scenarios, two separate scenarios that I want you yeah. to try and answer if you can. Um, and they're a bit like, you know, the guitarist Robert Johnson making a deal with the devil at the crossroads in America, <laughs> an exchange of his soul for the ability to play great blues on his guitar. So imagine you're Robert Johnson and yeah. it's, you know, it's every birder's dream to find a patch rarity or a new bird for your country. And I know that you, that's, that's what you're focusing on. That's what I'm focusing on. Yeah. yeah. So would you make a deal with the, the mischief God of birding? so that you find an American warbler, and let's just say a black and white warbler, you know, just off the top of my head. Um, Which will be new for the Netherlands. New for the Netherlands and a stunning bird, but in order to find that, you have to lose your field craft and your appreciation of jizz, so that 90% of the time when you raise your binoculars to look at a bird, it's a pigeon. No, no, I, I wouldn't. Uh, that's a diabolical dilemma. But because uh, an American warbler, finding American warbler in the in the Netherlands is like a, that's the holy grail for me. But um, you know, I plan to be birding till I'm a hundred, <laughs> and if I have to for those remaining sixty-four years, I have to uh, every time I raise my binoculars and then thinking I see something cool and then it's a feral pigeon. <laughs> I will, I will, I will then uh, not see the rather not see the the black and white warbler. But it is difficult, and you know, I did find an uh, American passerine once in the Netherlands. What was that? I found a, I found a Cassiar junco here in the Netherlands. So it's a it's a subspecies of uh, dark-eyed junco from the um, Canadian Rockies uh, that winters in the like in the lower 48. On the first of May 20 on the 2022, together with a friend of mine, we we found one on the on the Maasvlakte in the Netherlands. And when I raised my binoculars, I saw this bird. First, we we immediately realized we're looking at a dark-eyed junco, and then later on, it turned out to be even rarer, uh, like subspecies or form. But when I saw, like, raised my binoculars, see that I saw that bird, and I looked at my uh, the first um, back of the screenshots of my camera. I literally had to lay down on the on the ground because I like it became too much for me. <laughs> my heart was pounding. I couldn't sleep that night, and uh, it was just the most amazing uh, experience. But you know, it's still junko and not a. Um, like a pearly day or a dendroica warbler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's still excellent, still excellent. Now, my other scenario is is maybe a bit less challenging. <laughs> okay. Would you become the the finder of a previously thought extinct bird, say an Eskimo curlew or an ivory-billed woodpecker or something like that, in exchange for having a full back tattoo depicting a beautiful diorama of an array of feral pigeons? Uh, then I would, uh, you can definitely, my girlfriend is looking <laughs> angry. 
<laughs> so like her her uh the look in her eyes like careful what you say now but <laughs> i would i would go for that tattoo yeah you can definitely if i would refine the slender build curlew for instance and actually like dna confirmed slender build curlew so I, I will have to collect some poop there <laughs> excellent excellent but then i would i would you can happily tattoo my back because i'm comfortable <laughs> with the shirt anyhow so I, I will it will mean i will will not be able to swim anymore in public places but i will go for it and um so actually i went over i think to suffolk um like about 15 or 20 years ago um to actually try to see a um, um a putative uh slender built uh curlew really i do yeah yeah, yeah. in suffolk and then actually uh so uh, there were like 2000 um, uh, british birders looking at this bird and i uh, together with a friend uh, we hadn't slept that night and we went straight from uh like going straight from the bar in the Netherlands to uh, the ferry at New uh, to Newcastle, and we drank on the boat <laughs> <laughs> on the ferry, and we were like uh, in this twitch trying to see this uh, slender curlew, like pushing each other into the bushes and like like being too noisy because like it was a British twitch, so everybody was very quietly and, and <laughs> trying hard not to be funny and, and loud and we were the opposite exact opposite but we did see the bird and then in the end i think they they actually did they collected some bird shit from that slender belt curlew and then it turned out to be a eurasian curlew oh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right then so yeah one day we'll maybe hold you to that uh, full back tattoo of a, a diorama of uh, feral <laughs> pigeons. Tomorrow I'll find that Slenderbilt girl you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be straight on the phone. Let's move on from this nonsense. Um, so take, tell us about bird number five. Bird number five. five. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's finish up with the biggest and baddest uh, year, the bird of the year, which I actually saw three times during my big year. Uh, and it's uh, the most mythical raptor of the neotropics uh, the, and uh, the biggest, one of the biggest eagles in the world, uh, the harpy eagle. Amazing. And, um, so this is a crazy story. So, so just prior to my big year, I was asked to come to uh, on the biggest Dutch talk show to talk about my uh, record attempt. And this show was hosted by Humberto Tan. He's the, like a famous uh, Dutch guy hosting this, uh, this talk show. They said, okay, under one condition, he wants to go birding for one morning with you. So prior to me being on this show, he went birding with me in the dunes. And, you know, it was just fun. And he really enjoyed birding for the first time. And he became like a fanatical nature photographer slash birder because of that. And we became friends. And at some point we were in the dunes just uh, without a camera crew, just uh, birding. And he said, can I join you during my, your big year? I thought, well, you have zero experience as a birder and you're the probably most famous guy in the Netherlands. And where do you, uh, will you ever find the time? And he said, are you perhaps going to Suriname? So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Suriname. Um, early um, uh, July, I will be there. He said, well, because he is from Suriname. He was born there. And he said, well, that's just in between uh, the end of the, the, the season of this talk show and just prior to me hosting the, uh, the Olympics um, in, the, in Brazil. Well, a week later, he had booked the ticket to Suriname. So fast forward to July 2016, I stepped off the plane in Paramaribo and who was waiting there for me, Umberto Tan, this famous <laughs> Dutch talk show host. 
En uh, together with Sindio uh, Rosem en Fred Panza, two bird guides, fantastic bird guides, who I can highly recommend, uh, we went to the Zintete Lodge uh, in the jungles of Suriname. And um, also with, uh, by the way, with Michiel, who, like the director of my documentary. But Michiel, after two days, he um, it turned out he had uh, caught malaria two weeks sure. earlier when he was uh, uh, in Ghana with me filming the Picatartis. So he had to, to be rushed to the hospital. And Umberto and I were just there with the guides in the middle of nowhere. And um, we were like both sleeping in a hammock next to each other. And then... Uh, in this setting, no internet, no uh, working uh, electricity, just candlelight. Umberto asked, what is the best bird we can possibly see here in Suriname? I'll say, well, Umberto, that is the harpy eagle. It is the most spectacular raptor in the Neotropic. It gets claws like the size of a grizzly bear. It hunts for like slot and howler monkeys. But I don't uh, know... We don't know a nesting site. It has these huge territories. It's hard to find, so don't count on it. Next day, we're in this van uh, driving an old logging road. And Fred Panza, the guide, is actually sitting on, on the roof of the, the van. And then suddenly Fred, like he slams on the back of the, on, on the, uh, the top of the, the van. We jump out and they're next to the, to the road in this old... Uh, uh, that tree is this huge female harpy eagle, oh. and uh, yeah, and we 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 watch it in the telescope. We observe it for fifteen minutes, and then we are in awe of this bird. And then finally, it opens its wings and it like glides over our heads in into the rainforest. And I had said, told Umberto, when you will see a harpy eagle, you will have goosebumps on your arm. So he like taps my shoulder and he shows his arms and goosebumps <laughs> everywhere. So yeah, that was uh, quite special. And then after that, um, I saw the uh, a harpy eagle again in um, in the Rio Azul Jungle Lodge in um, um, Brazil, and I saw it like uh, literally an hour apart from a crested eagle. <laughs> so that was. Uh, and then I also saw it from the harpy eagle from the canopy tower in the Sani Lodge. So I saw three harpy eagles that year, and also Philippine eagle. Uh, so the the two like rarest and biggest eagles in the world. I, I That's. That's just greedy now, you know. Uh, I mean, harpy eagles are just, you know, they're... I still saw two Philippine eagles, by the way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're, they're, they're all incredible birds, but harpies yeah. are, like, you know, arguably the best bird in the world, aren't they, for the reasons that you've just explained. I mean, yeah. anything that can carry something its own body weight, uh, you know, a monkey, you know, whatever... That it's just this demonic look to it, yeah. Like, yeah, this, yeah, dark eyes, it's gray head, this black choker, and then this wavy crest. And it, it like really looks like it can rip your head off if, if, if that has a chance, yes, yeah, absolutely. Great. And if any listeners don't know what one looks like, look it up. But if you've seen the Harry Potter films and you know what Bookbeak looks like, um, Bookbeak is styled on Harvey Eagle, so yeah, they're just uh, uh, incredible and. Um, and they're monogamous and they can, they're long lived. So they can, they can live as a happily married couple for 25 or 30 years. So yeah, Harpy Eagle is a, a, is a stunning bird to, to finish on. Um, right then, Arian, we've come to the end there. They're the five birds that you would save from certain extinction. But unfortunately you have to choose just one, one mm. bird that is gonna be your companion your sort of soulmate, the demon on your shoulder as you head off in this 
environmental waste, apocalypse. Wasteland. <laughs> Absolutely diabolical wasteland. I cannot use the feral pigeon. It has to be one. Because <laughs> I know the flying red will survive on this, this, <laughs> this, this barren wasteland. But no. Well, I, I will have to choose the black sickle bill then because in this barren wasteland without trees, it's I think we might maybe finally see it. <laughs> There's nowhere to hide, so it's got to be the black sickle bill then. Good choice. Well, Arian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today and chatting about these experiences. I, I'm extremely jealous, obviously. Oh. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Just to let everybody know, your book, published by Chelsea Green Publishing, The Big Year That Flew By, 12 Months, Six Continents and the Ultimate Birding Record. And that's out now. Do pick it up. It's a, a cracking read. And also there's your documentary, which you can find on your website, I believe. Actually, so here in the Netherlands, it's on Netflix. And I recently had somebody from Spain that tagged me on Instagram who said uh, he was watching my documentary on Netflix. So maybe it is also in the UK on Netflix. But ah, I'm not... I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll have a look. So as you mentioned earlier, you, you've just become a father for the first time. Suspect that isn't going to stop you birding at all. But what have you got, what have you got planned next? So I also have a podcast in the Netherlands, the Volvo's podcast. And actually in June, uh, we are traveling on an expedition uh, ship with 30 fans from our podcast to Spitsbergen to look for polar bears and uh, Greenland whales and, uh, and of course, ivory gulls and stuff like that. So that is going to be uh, my first trip. Yeah. And uh, quite a special one. And uh, yeah, and I'll be at Bird Fair. Are you there too? I, I don't have any plans to be there this year, unfortunately. I may well pop up, though. So if I no. if I do, if my plans change and I do end up there, I'll, I'll come and hunt you down. I'll give, uh, I think, not, not just one, but I think a multiple talks there. And I'll also be signing my book there. Excellent stuff. Well, all the best with your trip in June. And I hope your daughter's life list increases exponentially, as I'm sure it will. But thanks again, Ariane. <laughs> all the best. You're welcome. Well, it was nice uh, being on this show. I really enjoyed it. Happy birding. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for this week, folks. Thanks for listening and do tune in next time. I'm not 100% sure when my next episode will be, but hopefully it won't be too long. Until then, take care and bye for now.